Now I invite you to turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 10 and 11. That there are some passages that are really, really easy, and there are some that are not so easy, and there are some that are kind of a mix of in-between. Um, we can often tell a story so many times that, that we lose maybe what it has for us to listen, to listen and learn from. And God has been doing a work in my life this week as I continued to process um, this story in David's life. It's one, obviously, we're all going to go to. Uh, it's one we always go to when we're telling these stories. Um, but I think that it has something a little different. I know it for me, it has today. Uh, this morning's main story is a story within a story. Uh, up to this point, I mean, we've watched David, and we, we began with his, in the comparison of him and Saul, and we've watched David uh, attain victory after victory, and blessing upon blessing, and, and all this process, and now he's the king of a united Israel, both the southern and the northern kingdoms have, have come together. And he's established Jerusalem, and he's established this understanding of, and now is providing the, the, the products that will eventually build the temple. And he's received this covenant blessing from God. And in some ways, you're getting a sense of it. And the way what we'll find is that David is starting to really believe the hype. Up to this point, David has been a man of action and a man of trust. He's been a man of faithfulness to God and to, uh, to the people that God has put around him. And up to this point, th through the history of David's uh, life, the Ammonites and the Israelites have been consistently at each other in various phases of war, especially through Saul's kingship as uh, but in that same time as Saul was chasing David, the Ammonites helped David. They, they built a little bit of a relationship with him. But the king of the Ammonites dies. This friend of David dies, and David decides that he's going to show kindness to the new king, his son, the, the former king's son. And so for this state funeral, he he decides he's going to send delegates to express his kindness and, and thoughts for this loss. Needless to say, it doesn't go as intended. The, the diplomats get there, and the new king and his uh, royal uh, head, head people, um, nobles, decide that these guys can't be of goodwill. Have you ever second-guessed someone's goodwill? Well, they decide they must be spies. They're looking for weaknesses in all that's going on. And so I hope that this never happens in your house, but they take these guys in and they decide we're going to show them. And they take these delegates, cut off half their beards, and then cut off their their clothing at the waist, exposing them, and then sending them on their way. Not exactly how you receive delegates. 
Well, it's an embarrassment not just to these men, but it's an embarrassment to the country and the king that they represent. And they know it. They know what they've done. And so they go off and hire armies from Syria and Aramea to support them in what they know will be a war. David obviously gets upset. How dare you insult me? Not just my country, but more importantly, me. And we don't want to miss this next point. Because this has an overlying uh, effect throughout the rest of this story. It says that for the first time, David sent his army to confront an enemy and did not go with it. This is not the method of leadership that God has instructed His king of His people to lead by. The king is not to send and to be served. Rather, he is to lead and to serve. It's the difference between a leader and a king. And while they may have a title of king, he he expects these men to be leaders first and foremost. The king is to go with the army. and It's it's very much symbolized how God would go with his people. Uh, He would go to the battle lines as well through the Ark of the Covenant. His presence would be on the battle line. And yet David sends his nephew Joab, his top general, to lead Israel's army and stays behind. And Joab, as he gets there, it's, it's a quick story, but he sees the, the army of the Syrians and Arameans, and he sees the Syrians on their side, and he divides his people, and he says, you know, if one gets overrun by the other, the other can go and help, and, and he sets up this plan, and the Syrians and the Arameans just run. Good paid mercenaries that they are. And, and when the uh, Ammonites see that the other side has already fallen apart, and now both of these, these groups are coming on hit them. They run in inside the city. Well, it's fall. It's, it's not time to do a siege on a city, a, a walled city. So Joab collects his army, and he goes back to Jerusalem. Well, the Ammonites see all this, and they decide, well, you know, we're not going to leave good enough alone. And they come back for more. And this time, though, David gathers his army together and goes after the Ammonites. And they flee once again. But it's not over. It's just intermission. It's winter. And it's within this context that we enter into chapter 11. And what I feel is a particularly uh, messed up story. It's spring. Now, Scripture does not say it's spring, but it's the time when kings go off to war, which is spring because they can have long battles. The the land is now starting to produce, and it's able to uh, supply and hold and not be completely miserable on a military campaign. But the Hebrew text here makes it painfully clear 
that while it says it is the time that kings go off to war, but David stayed in Jerusalem. A more literal translation isn't that he's staying, but it's he sat. That is, David sat rather than going out. It's, it's a, it, to stay is a neutral term. It really doesn't have a sense of good or bad. But to sit is a decision that you make. It's, to sit is seen as determined and conscious refusal to not go out. Have you ever dealt with a toddler that didn't want to go? Well, David's a full-size man. He's the king. You can't just pick him up by an arm and drag him anyway. But David sat. And by sitting, he's refusing. He's not just refusing to go where he's supposed to go. He, it, we have to remember, it's God's commandment that the king go with the army to go out. It's not a matter of kingly prerogative that he just sit back. This story begins with the intentional disobedience to God by God's very own king that he put in place. David is sending Joab with his army. And the story gets progressively worse. So David's home. He's not where he's supposed to be. He decides, well, I'm home, I'm bored, so what does he do? There's nothing on TV, so he takes a nap. Mid-afternoon. It's a good idea, naps. But David gets up from a nap and decides, well, I'm still bored, so he's, I'm going to pursue and purview all that's around me. And you remember the castles, uh, his home would have been one of the top places in, in Jerusalem, and he can look out over his city, and he's walking along, and he's just kind of looking down, and he goes, oh. And he sees on this rooftop a beautiful woman taking a bath. And his lust kicks into overdrive. Now remember, David has at least six wives at this point. And we don't know how many concubines at this point. But David doesn't settle, go, oh, and go to one of his own wives or his concubines. He goes, oh. And he sends that word again. A messenger to find out who she is. Who is this young woman? And so the word comes back that she's married. And so he has a decision that he's going to have to make. But not only is he married, he is married, she is married, but she's also the daughter of Eliam, who is one of David's 30 mighty men, his top army people. Not only is she the daughter of that, she is the wife of Uriah, also one of David's 30 mighty men. David had a very personal relationship with both. Not only that, she's also the granddaughter of one of David's top advisors. 
it's getting messed up here. That he's, he's consciously starting to think, so from right from the start, if David follows through with his initial thoughts, he's choosing to commit adultery and also to betray some of his most loyal followers. But he has a choice. He can just let it go, or he can follow through. Verse 4, David sent a messenger. And then it's to, to get Bathsheba, and it just says very emotionally that she came, he slept with her, she went home. Well, it, it'd be about a month or six month to six weeks later, she sends word, I'm pregnant. And the plot thickens. Now David has a big problem. I mean, what happens when her husband finds out? She's going to die. And in all rights and all according to the law, David should be executed for this. For adultery is against the law. But who's going to kill the king? I mean, David's the top person in this. So, David decides, you know what, I'll just hide it. I'll devise, and he devises this plan in, in, his, in his head and in his heart to hide his sin. And so the thing he seems to have completely forgot though, in, in the midst of this plan was that despite however cunning his plans uh, to hide his sin from others, God sees and knows all. And just as important is, there are going to be consequences. And so David has this big problem on his hand. And the thing is that sometimes we treat this and our sin with the same understanding. And we, we treat it as a theory, you know, that this understanding of, of God seeing and knowing all and consequences is just really a theory. I mean, we occasionally go ahead and do what we know is wrong. We intentionally sin. We, we make those choices and we declare it a personal issue. And then somehow we think that, well, if we hide it and others don't find out about it, well... That's the most important thing, right? You know, as long as it's just my thing. If we can just keep it quiet, and if life moves on uninterrupted at this point, more, we more or less just dodge the bullet and, you know, everything's fine. But why is it that we think that way? It's because earthly consequences... For our bad behavior and bad choices seem so much more real, so much more important and immediate than the heavenly consequences that are dealing with God. And so that's what we focus on avoiding. But what about God? What about the divine consequences of our sin as it concerns our relationship with Him? What happens when we treat God as obligated to wave his hands of forgiveness over us. 
And so we treat the idea of consequences with God as just theory. Because we haven't, because with the fact that we've been taught that Christ's blood neg- negates the possibility of divine punishment, so hallelujah, we're home free. We'll just ask God for forgiveness and it'll all be fine. And we kind of see that even though Christ isn't a part of this equation at this point, David finds out that there are consequences. So David devises this cover-up. And he sins again for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. This is not a role in what he's asking Uriah to come do for a general in David's army. This is a role for a messenger. But David sends for Uriah. And a few days later, Uriah arrives. And we have to remember in the background, biology hasn't changed. There's still only a nine-month period from conception to birth. And now we're almost probably almost two months into it because we don't have little sticks to tell us that we're pregnant. We have to wait on things. And all this is going along and at some point she's going to start showing. And we laugh. This is the reality. And we think, you know, we're going to get Uriah here. And I'll ask him some questions. And so, he, you know, David doesn't want to seem too anxious or behave too suspiciously. So he asks about Joab and he asks about the battle lines and how things are going. All things that, again, a general really shouldn't have been called from the battlefront to deal with. But the reality is, and we don't get an answer because the reality is it doesn't matter because this customary chit chat is just a way for David then to say at the end. You know, why don't you, okay, thanks for sharing that. Why don't you go home and wash your feet? Well, washing your feet means I want you to just go home, lay down, be with your wife. You know, we know you've been away from home. You're tired. It's a comfy bed. And your wife's beautiful. And all this stuff. But instead of going home, Uriah stays with the king's court and his servants. And so when David hears that Uriah didn't go home, he calls for him and asks, why wouldn't you go home? Why, why didn't you go? Like, I, I gave you permission. And, after, and, and, he, and so after all he's been away, Uriah answers that he couldn't bring himself to sleep comfortably in his own bed with his wife when the army and the Ark of the Covenant are roughing it in tents. It would have tortured Uriah's conscience and defied his military training as a leader to take advantage of the safety and comfort while others were off doing the fighting. Remember in the very beginning when we were talking the contrast of what Saul should have been doing and David did? Now we have it here of this contrast being provided of what 
Uriah couldn't bring himself to do was the very thing that David was doing for himself. Uriah is now the person of integrity while David is being proven to be unfaithful. So David changes his tactics. In in verse 12, he he tells Uriah, well, why don't you just stay here another day? It's a little too late for you to go back uh, to the battle line and we'll send you off tomorrow. And so, but in the back of his head, he's thinking already other plans. And so he creates this big banquet with the full intent of getting Uriah drunk to the point that he would be off of his normal senses and would just probably go home for the night and be with his wife. Well, that doesn't go as intended. Once again, Uriah, even in the midst of his drunkenness, stays at the palace court with the servants. And so to David's frustration, it doesn't work out as he intended. And so the irony is getting thicker and thicker that the faithfulness of Uriah is exposing the unfaithfulness of David. But David's not going to be deterred. He's he's going to deal with this issue at hand. And so he decides to take it even further. And in verse 14, David writes a message for his general and, and sends it with Uriah. And the contents of the letter are chilling. David knows that his seduction of Bathsheba is going to become public soon. People know. The messengers know. The servants know what has gone on. And he has no chance now of pinning Bathsheba's pregnancy on her husband because the entire royal court has witnessed Uriah refusing to go home. So now David compounds his adultery and conspira- with conspiracy to commit murder. And he, want- he decides he's going to get Ur- Uriah killed by the enemy because it would just appear as a- another battlefield death in order to give David's plans some credibility in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 11, it explains how Joab has decided that he's going to accomplish these wishes. Knowing that if you're going to make an omelet, you're going to have to break a few eggs. And so Joab sends Uriah along with what would, you know, would have been some of Uriah's men to fight where it's always dangerous, right up against the walls of the city where the archers are at their best. Remember, this is a siege. This is where we just block off all incoming and outgoing traffic, and they deplete their resources inside the city and either give up or die. They don't have to do anything to win this battle at this point. But Joab sends them. And several others are killed alongside Uriah. Mission accomplished. Joab sends a courier back to Jerusalem to tell David about the initial setbacks at this wall. And Joab disguises the part of the message that David is really kind of waiting to hear by making it seem as well as just part of it. But he also knows that David's going to get angry because of what has happened. That men died. That 
And, and so he says, you know, if David gets angry, just tell him that in the midst of this battle, Uriah, your servant, died. And exactly like that, it happens. David gets upset because how would you dare? Would you do something so stupid to send men into the close of the walls? And how, why, Joab, why? And all of a sudden the messengers is, and your servant Uriah is also dead. And David reply to Joab is simply this. Don't let this matter get you down. The sword devours in one way or another. Oh well. Men died. Not just a man, but men died. And chapter 11 ends with Bathsheba getting word of her husband's death. And she mourns as typically a woman would. But after the mourning period of seven days, it says immediately following the seven days, David sent for Bathsheba and he married her and she bore him a son. This son, we are never given his name. Son's name would have been given after or, or provided after the point of circumcision in the Jewish tradition. But this last verse, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. In spite of God's love for David, and God is not blind to the evil that David has chosen to participate in. In the story, there is no attempt to explain the reasons for behind what David did. That, you know, as, as we found with Saul, you know, where it would say an evil spirit or this or that. No, this is David. And the judgment of God is unconditional. The thing that David did was evil in God's sight it displeased him and we think of displeasure well eh, it's it just made him a little unhappy no it displeased him this word displeased is is often translated as displeased but it's grieved sad ill evil much like revelation when God says, you know, either be hot or cold, it says basically here that David's sin made God sick to his stomach. You make me want to throw up. The bottom line of this story of David and Bathsheba here for us this morning, in some ways, is as much a warning as it is a story of history. It demonstrates to all that worship God that it doesn't matter that we've accepted Christ if we freely choose that once we are saved, we now have the tools to just go it alone. I mean, that once we believe that we're saved, that God sets aside all justice and all the righteous requirements of, of relationship with Him and that there are no longer going to ever be any consequences to our behavior in our choices. I mean, there is no greater hero in Scripture than David. 
And yet, in spite of every advantage of nearness and access to God, of of an abundance of divine mercy and grace always made available to him, of a lifetime of miraculous victories that no man would ever have a right to expect, and yet his evil inclinations take hold of him in this moment, and we see a man that seems to have decided that he can take care of himself and that God doesn't matter And, you know, the consequence is, well, whatever. Because I want the lust. I want to create and and take this woman, and she is now not just a person. She's not Uriah's wife and Eliam's daughter and a granddaughter. She's just an object to be consumed. And please note that the devil is never blamed for this. This is on David and the evil inclinations within his own heart that he has not surrendered to God. And like so many of us, David tries to to separate his personal and professional life, his religious self and his public self. And and as it eventually does for all of us, it threatens to tear him apart and destroy both worlds as we try to keep them apart. As human beings in relationship with the living and holy God, we can't divide ourselves and our loyalties. We can't be Christians on Sunday and act like everybody else during the rest of the week. Our God does not accept compartmentalization of our religious and secular lives. We are called to be holy. He is holy. Even if we give money for the missions trip and we sing in the praise team and we we bring lunches to shut-ins and we do all the good things that look so good to everybody else and, and we make ourselves feel good, if we take our eyes off of God and His calling for our life with the assumption of, well, it'll all be okay. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. then we treat the sacrifice of Christ as just fire insurance. It's really of no value. We cheapen it. Christ's sacrifice for us then just becomes an opportunity to live in the, into the freedom and abuse it, what's been offered. It's an opportunity to, to live, when, when we take Christ into our life, it's an opportunity to live into the freedom, though, that has been offered. It's an opportunity to live the rest of our life knowing that our past has been indeed forgiven. But now with the future, we get to live into this freedom in a way that we, within the power of the Holy Spirit, that we have the power to make the choices to live rightly in relationship with God from here on out. Not as an opportunity just, well, I can just keep asking for forgiveness and keep doing whatever I want to do because God's just going to pat me on the back. 
if we continue to make choices that dishonor God, then we cheapen God's grace and we trivialize the sacrifice of Christ. If we live aside from our relationship and calling with God through Christ, then we despise Christ at the same time. I, I, when I began this preparation for this Sunday, I was like, well, you, you can't not talk about David and Bathsheba and then talk about, you know, you have to include Nathan. And the more I got into it, the more I, I thought about it and prayed over it, and God started working in my heart, I need us to, to sit on this for a while. Because David sat on this. He thought he had gotten away with it. We need to understand that our sin has consequences. That we can't just wash it away by saying, God, forgive me. I'll just keep on living. That Christ's sacrifice and the freedom that he offers is not to be abused. There is a righteous requirement that the Holy Spirit empowers within us that we then choose to respond to in our freedom that we choose to give God all the glory. Not just with certain parts of our life on Sunday, but with every part of our life. I can't emphasize this enough. God is calling us to more. God is calling us to more. God is calling us to more. And that includes me. My calling is to constantly, every day, lay my life at the altar of Christ and saying, not just God forgive me, but thank you for your forgiveness. Help me to choose to live differently. And that's your calling too. As followers of Christ, we are called to live differently. And we need to sometimes get a little uncomfortable because it's in that uncomfortableness of knowing that that sin still lingers there, that component of our life, that if we live into it, consequences are going to come. And they will. We'll talk about that next week. But understand, David's life from here on out is an absolute wreck. God is still faithful. His covenant still remains. But the, the personal and professional relationship of David, because of this sin, 1 Kings represents it, you know, that, God, that David was a man after God's own heart. But in his dealings with Uriah, he found displeasure. May we truly understand what God is calling us to do. He's provided a way. He's done all that's ever necessary. We don't have to bring up animals and slaughter them and then wait for the next year. God has done the perfect sacrifice. It's time for us to stop taking abuse of that. And so, we pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to live rightly through Your Holy Spirit. in thankfulness for 
what you have provided for us. And that God, there is sin in some of our lives that needs to be rectified. As we sit on this passage this week, and all that's been going on in David's life, may we not take it lightly of where we stand before you. That God, you continue to call us to something different than just a relationship of fire insurance. That you are not just a get out of hell card to be played at our own convenience. That you are a righteous and holy God that still demands righteous justice and judgment for an eternity to be spent with you. Heaven and hell are a very real reality. And the only thing that stands between us and one or the other is the sacrifice of your Son on our behalf. May we not take that lightly. In your name we pray. Amen. Go and be in peace. You're dismissed.